Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. The Great Reveal. That's the cool title of our message today from Pastor Al Pittman. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts. Listen today as Pastor Al points out that we need to be able to say, This was that which was spoken of which Peter said in explaining that the day of Pentecost had been foretold by the prophet Joel. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun, and we need to be very cynical about any supposed new doctrine that periodically blows through and hopefully out of the church. That's why it's so crucial to study the whole counsel of God. This approach avoids overemphasis of any extreme teaching. And with that in mind, let's look to Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 14. Let's listen to the great reveal. All right. I know my glasses are here somewhere. There they are. Amen. I've entitled this message. You got to have them. I've entitled this message, The Great Reveal. And many of you have heard of, uh, you know, today among millennials, especially, it's kind of become a tradition to have what is called reveal parties. Amen. And, and uh, where the expecting mother reveals the gender of the child and and all of that. And I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, our, it wasn't like that in our generation, my generation, I should say, amen. And uh, if you want to know the gender of the child, you just got to wait until the child comes. Or you could do that little ultrasound. Remember that? You couldn't even figure out what it was, like a little peanut or something. Or, you know, they say, well, there's his eyes. You go, I'm having a peanut, you know, or whatever. Just, uh, but things have changed. And I, I have to commend the younger generation for doing these reveal parties, celebrating the reveal of the child. Well, speaking of reveal, uh, Norma and I are ecstatic to uh, announce to you the birth of our 10th grandson, grandchild. There he is. This is Reggie and uh, Alyssa, Reggie, our son Reggie and Alyssa's child, and uh, we're so excited. His name is Zakai Matthias Pittman, and Zakai in Hebrew means pure, and Matthias means gift of God. That's a pure gift of God, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So we're excited about that. Amen. Well, what does it have to do with the text? Nothing. We're just grandparents. Amen. Well, it kind of segues into the very fact that in Peter's sermon that begins in verse 14, on the day of Pentecost, we find actually three, a threefold reveal, if you will, related to prophecy, Christ, and salvation. I want to talk to you about those three, that, the reveal that Peter gives to us through his message on the day of Pentecost. The once cowardly Peter, now filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, courageously stands up and reveals the true significance of that day nearly 2,000 years ago. And as Peter was a witness on that day, God has called us to be witnesses to our generation. Uh, our job is not to get results. Our job is simply to reveal that's really what evangelism is, is we reveal the truth. To reveal and then God heals those who are lost and those who uh, uh, are uh, in need or hurting around us. And my wife and I were at the, uh, this restaurant the other day and you may remember when I shared around Christmas time how we went to this restaurant and God laid it upon our heart to really bless uh, the, the waitress, uh, no, that's not politically correct, waitress, wait person. Uh, I don't care if it isn't politically correct. Waitress uh, <laughs> with a nice tip. And, uh, you know, just something the Lord laid on our heart and, and we invited her to our church and shared with her about, you know, that God loved her and, and all of that. So we went back to this restaurant the other day and uh, lo and behold, this didn't even recognize it. She was just glowing. Beautiful young lady. 
And, uh, but she recognized us. She said, aren't you, you know, the, the wife, and aren't you, you know, Pastor Al? And yeah, that's me, you know, whatever, you know. And uh, she said, well, I'm, I'm the, the lady that you talked to, uh, the, uh, waited on you guys uh, some time ago. And I, oh, it's you. And we're all excited, everything. And she says, I've been going to the church. And she said, and she said you know what, not only that, Amen. I, I, I've given, uh, I have, uh, actually have, have one of my fellow uh, employees uh, going there to the church. And also I found out that his family used to go to the church and they kind of stopped going, you know, and now they're starting to come back again. Amen. So I'm, I'm thinking, look at, the, look at the fruit of just the reveal. You just need to reveal to tell people. And this is what Paul, Peter rather is doing here is he's revealing the truth, revealing the prophecy, revealing Christ, revealing salvation. And then as we'll see in our text, God does the rest. Isn't God good? Amen. So Peter's threefold reveal begins with prophecy. Verses 14 to 21, if you will read along with me. Verse 14, now Peter's addressing the mockery that some in the crowd were making. Uh, they were mock mocking the uh, believers on the day of Pentecost, saying that, oh, these guys are just drunk with wine. And Peter said, the Bible says rather in verse 14, but Peter stood standing up with the 11, what 11? The 11 apostles raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose. Amen. They're high, but they're not high on wine. They're high on the most high. Amen. These are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. It was only nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servant, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will and they shall rather prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before, here's the context, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, a day that is described to us in Revelation chapter 19. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's quoting the prophet Joel there. He's declaring to them first that the experience that these folks are witnessing, these people around, the crowd is witnessing, is an experience that is substantiated through the word of God. Through the prophetic spoken word of God through the prophet Joel. He says there in verse 16, this is what was spoken. I love how the old King James Version says it. This is that which was spoken. Amen. I like that phrase, this is that. It's a great spiritual lesson for us, a way that we can avoid false doctrines and being, you know, sucked into false teaching. And that way it simply does. I've shared it before in the past and put it this way. I, uh, hopefully it makes sense to you, but if this, the experience, is not that authorized by the word of God, then that is not this. If this is not that, then that is not this. 
If you cannot validate it through the authority of God's word, then it's just, it's just spiritual hype. Don't be deceived by the religious hype that is out there. And sometimes Christians are, are deceived in the religious hype. They, they don't, you know, people are doing things and they're just going along, to, you know, to get along. But it's not substantiated through the word of God. If this, the experience is not that, which is the authority of authorized by God's word, then that, whatever it may, you may be doing, may make you feel good or whatever, is not this. And you should stay away from it. Amen. And so he does that first, you know, he substantiates or, or uh, reveals to them that what they're witnessing is actually something that is a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophet Joel, in particular, Joel chapter two, verses 28, all the way to verse 32, the first part of verse 32. Now, who was Joel? Joel was an Old Testament prophet. He one of the 12 minor prophets, beginning at Hosea all the way through to Malachi. And um, he prophesied concerning this day that is recorded for us here in Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, more than, uh, prophesied about this more than 500 years before Jesus Christ even came on the scene. He refers to that in the last days, at last days, and I talked about last days last week about the fact that we are actually living in the last days, the age of grace, the age of the church. The reference to, he says that in the last days that all people, that all flesh rather, all people, um, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all people. That all people that he's referring to is not everybody on the planet, but all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. The word prophecy. And uh, it, it is the, uh, defined by, by this, by, uh, this way, is it's to foretell uh, under divine inspiration. Uh, that is to predict under divine inspiration. But it also means to teach. It means to refute. It means to reprove. It means to admonish. It means to comfort. What I do and what I'm doing right now is I'm prophesying. I'm speaking forth the word of God. Now, when we think about prophecy, you always think of it in sort of the ooh, kind of mystical kind of uh, context, predicting the future or whatever. And, um, you know, it's not just that. Yes, it does for you can foretell different things uh, that God reveals, but it is also teaching and refuting and reproving and admonishing and comforting. Biblical prophecy is really key to the edification of the church. Why do I say that? Well, turn with me, if you will, to First Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians Chapter 14. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Now, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and Corinth had a bunch of knuckleheads in the, in the church. They, they were, they were knuckleheads. They were carnal, they were practicing all kinds of crazy things. Things were out of order, and Paul is setting things in order. And he says here in verse 1 of uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 14 Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Nothing wrong with desiring spiritual gifts, praying and asking God, you know, to reveal to you what the spiritual gifts he's given to you, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, this is, of course, and again, and it's, it's uh, speaking forth. You can say prophecy, prophesying is speaking forth the word of God. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. Amen. However... In the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. So as I'm speaking forth the word of God, it's speaking edification, 
We're speaking exhortation and comfort to the people. He who speaks in a tongue edifies who? Open book test. Himself. That's right. You're having a Holy Ghost party over there and nobody knows what's going on, right? You edifying yourself. But he who prophesies edifies what? The church, everybody. And then Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. You know what that implies? They all didn't. Amen. But then there are churches that teach that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that or chapter 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts according to as he wills. Amen. And not as the pastor wills or the so-called prophet, but as he wills. And so, you know, some people can speak in tongues. Some people don't. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. All the gifts come from one source. They come from 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 the Lord. But even more that you prophesied. I know, you, you know, some I wish you all spoke in tongues, but I, I wish you all prophesied, spoke the word of God. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Amen. True prophecy involves, I don't want to lose my place there. True prophecy involves three things, edification, exhortation, and comfort. It builds up the body of Christ, builds up the whole church. And notice the gift of tongues, of going, again, only edifies the individual. Not that it's, it's uh, um, I'm trying to uh, demean it in any way, of course not. Uh, it is an important gift that the Holy Spirit gives to certain people, um, but it only edifies the individual. Unless there's an interpreter, Paul said, and of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's not on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 14, 28, or you can go back and read the whole chapter again. Uh, Paul says that if you do not have the gift of interpretation, you should be quiet in the church. You should be silent. And sometimes I've been in places where people say, oh, I just, Lord, Holy Spirit hit me and I just had a blow. You know, it's like, wait a minute. And Paul said, if you don't have the gift of interpretation, be quiet. Now, a lot of times people will come and they'll ask me, and a lot of times, I shouldn't say, it's a once or twice and 23 years. <laughs> uh, but I've had people come up and say, do you believe in the gifts? You know what that is? It's code. That's code for, I didn't hear anybody speaking in tongues in your service. And what I always tell them, of course we believe in all the gifts. But we believe that when we're gathered together like this morning in a mixed multitude, people here who know the Lord, people here who don't know the Lord, that it's always better to prophesy, to speak forth the word of God for the edification of all. Amen. And so that's why we teach the word of God, you know, when we're gathered together like this, because Paul said it's better to prophesy. It's better to speak forth the word of God. Now, I've been in services where, and of course, you notice in verse 14, he says, he who speaks in a tongue speaks to God, speaks mysteries, right? And remember, on the day of Pentecost, when they were speaking in this heavenly dialect, that the people said, we hear them in our own language, speaking of the mighty works of God, the wonderful works of God. So when you're speaking in tongues, you're speaking to God. But I've been in services, and maybe you have experienced this, where people, uh, somebody will, will give a tongue, and then someone will say, here's the interpretation. And the interpretation will go along uh, something like this. Thus saith the Lord. Right? Anybody ever experienced that? Experience that? That's the false interpretation. Because tongues is not speaking to men. Tongues is speaking to God. Amen? Amen. 
Now, I can go into a whole lot of this, but sometimes there's confusion. There's somebody there with the gift of knowledge, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and they've confused it with the interpretation. And so they may give you, uh, have the gift of knowledge and speak a word, but basically uh, they, it's not the interpretation of that tongue because the tongue is always speaking toward God. Amen? Are you with me? All right, hope you're still there. All right. And so another thing that's kind of enlightening to folks, and again, talking about prophecy and all of this, in relationship to, to tongues, because people always want to know about the tongues thing, you know. And, uh, but um, it's interesting that tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Got real quiet on me right there, all right? Because in the church, I mean, there's some churches that teach that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even born again. Or if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. But tongues, is, it was given for unbelievers, not to unbelievers, but for a sign to unbelievers that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. Amen? I don't know about that. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but, for, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for the unbeliever, but for those who believe. Now, the devil has done a great job in the church of flipping the script. Because now we emphasize on tongues, we emphasize the tongues as believers, and everybody's got to speak in tongues. But when it comes to prophecy, we think prophecy is for the world. You know, we got to, we got to prophesy. So, so what we want to do in our churches is make sure that they're seeker friendly because prophesying, preaching the word is for the world. No, it's not. It's for the building up of the church. And so in seeker friendly churches, you don't want to mention the blood of Jesus and you surely don't want to call that lifestyle a sin. So we want to tone it down, tone it down. So because we got people here that we might offend. No, prophesying, teaching the word of God is for the body of Christ, for the building up of the church. Amen. And what I do, amen, give God praise and glory. Amen. And so what I do is that I'm teaching. That's why we teach through the Bible. We teach the word. Yeah, the, the boring parts, the exciting parts, the hard parts. We teach it all. Because it's for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ. That's what I do. Well, that wasn't an evangelistic message. Well, I'm not here to evangelize. I'm here to build disciples. Amen. Now, we give people an opportunity to come to Christ at every service. We try to at every service. And there are many people who've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in these services over the years. And we'll continue to do so. But my primary focus is the edification of the body of Jesus Christ. That's why I teach this way. He goes on to say, in verse 23, a lot of common sense here. He says, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you guys are nuts? <laughs> Isn't that what it says? That you're out of your mind. Have you ever gone into services like that? And look, they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. We still love them. They're still on their way to heaven. Amen. But you go in there and if you're uninformed and everybody's in there speaking in tongues, you go, what is this? These people are nuts. Paul said it. He says they walked in and saw that. They say these people are nuts. But he says, but if all prophesy, if you're speaking forth the word of God and an unbeliever, an un, or, uh, uh, unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is com convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And, th and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's exactly what we see when people come to Christ in these services. 
They heard the word of God and they, in a spiritual sense or, or metaphorically, fall on their face and say, truly God is in this place and they stand up and they give their life to Jesus Christ. Amen? So this is what Paul is talking about. Teach the word of God. Now, Paul says here, uh, also, he said, I would rather speak five words in verse uh, 19. He says, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And the church is the opposite in many places. Very little teaching, if any teaching at all. Just a whole lot of inspiration and perspiration and a whole lot of speaking in tongues. And oh, we went to church. Well, what did the pastor teach? I don't know, but ooh, we had church. Really. <laughs> you got church, but do you have Jesus? Because he said those who are truly his disciples are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So we teach the word of God. And remember, he says here in, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, he says, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Amen. People want to come into church and say, you know, I want to I want to excel in the church. I want the pastor to notice me or I want to be a really, you know, God to use me in the church. And they seek to excel. But what the, many times they're focused on just uh, seeking to be promoted themselves. You know, if you seek the gifts, you, there's nothing wrong. Seek the gifts. You know, ask God, Lord, what gifts have you given me? And operate in those gifts, but seek those gifts that edify and build up the whole church. Amen. I've been in services again. I've mentioned this before, but where they have receiving lines for if you want to receive the gift of tongues or the gift of healing, stand in this line and people will line up. And, Woo, you know, and then they fall backwards or whatever, you know, I'm not mocking it. It's just it's ignorance sometimes. For number one, you, the pastor can't give you the gift. Only the Holy Spirit gives it. He's not the distributor of the gifts. The Holy Ghost is. Amen. The Holy Spirit. So you, no pastor can give you the gift by just laying on of hands. And what does it do? Draw attention to the pastor. People start worshiping the pastor. Amen. We're to worship the Lord. The Holy Spirit won't even speak about himself. Jesus said he will only speak about me. Amen. So anyway, it's just, it's, so that's, that's not right. But I think, you know, people, we, we like those kind of gifts. We like Speaking in tongues, we like gift of healing. You know why? Because it draws attention to me. It draws attention to me and not to Jesus. People say they do, they do it in Jesus' name and all that, but it really draws attention to you. Listen, we talk about all the gifts. There are many gifts. There's gifts found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. There's a list of the gifts in those three chapters, uh, three books. And... Um, but I've never been at a church where I've seen a receiving line for this gift found in uh, Romans chapter 12, the gift of giving. And in fact, let's just start a line this morning. Amen. Just start right here. Ain't nobody jumping out of the seats. Did you know gift of giving was a, it was a gift of the Holy Spirit? And what is that? I mean, everybody gives, but there are some people who give lavishly because it says here that the gift of giving and you give with liberality. You don't tip God on Sunday. You give liberally. There are some people I've met who God is blessed because, because they give liberally. Even beyond their own means, sometimes they just, they just give because they, they have a giving heart. They have the gift of giving. 
And it could not just only be, you know, not just financially, but, but also of their time, you know, of their lives to other people. They're just givers. You ever meet anybody like that? They have the gift of giving. And then here's another line I've never seen in any church. The gift of showing mercy. I'm just, this is just Bible. I don't, I don't you know, I'm, I'm making this up. The gift of showing mercy. And, and the Bible says, showing mercy with cheerfulness. See, it's one thing to show mercy. It's another thing to show mercy with cheerfulness. Here's showing mercy. You know, you got one more time. You got, you, you, you got one more, you're on my last nerve. That's not mercy, according to scripture. But showing mercy cheerfully. That person has wronged me, they have hurt me, and cheerfully, I forgive them. Ooh, we, we all got a long way to go, don't we, amen? Let's just be honest about it. But that's God, what God calls it. We can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the gift of helps. Again, everybody's supposed to help, you know. You ask you moving or something, and somebody says, hey, can you help me move, brother? Well, I don't have that gift. Yeah, you know, it's like, I don't have the gift of helps. I would help you get up off the floor, but I just don't have the gift of help. Now, that's a cop-out, amen? Everybody should be helping, but there are those who have the gift of helps. That person is always there, you know, when you need them. I mean, you know, there are people like that just gifted that way. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It said the gift of helps. It's listed in Scripture. And then here's another one. I've never seen a line for this one. The gift of administration. Some people have the gift of administration. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. We need, you know, th things get done around here in church. You come, you sit in your chairs. And, you know, but there's administration behind the lights being on and, and the seats being the way they are and all these other things. And the air conditioning works, you know, sometimes. Amen. But, you know, there's, there's administration behind all, the, all of that ministries for the young adults and for marriage ministry and all these different things in the most excellent way. And all these things just don't just get done. There's people who put in time. To make sure these things flow in a way that edifies the body of Christ. Amen. And so you can help. If you've got the gift of administration, you can help. You come and volunteer a couple of hours a week just to answer the phones or whatever. But there's a lot of administration that's in the church. And God gives us a gift, the gift of administration around the church. Listen, I'd rather have somebody help me than speak in tongues over me. Amen. I'm just saying now, you stand up, Pastor Al, let me just speak in tongues over you just a minute. Let me see. And they go for it, you know. Shondala, whatever it is. Like, you know, while you're doing the Shondala, reach in your pocket and give me a $100 bill of law. Amen. Because that would help me. I'm just saying. See, the Bible is very practical. If we have the means to help somebody, help them. And we should pray for each other, yes, but sometimes, you know, you know, if you can help somebody, help them. You have the gift of helps or whatever. Do the practical thing, that which edifies the entire body of Christ. Well, let's go back to Acts before I get in any more trouble. <laughs> Chapter 2. He said, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And I thought, amen, because old men like to take naps, I guess. But vision here, he talks about vision, that is vision, acts 
which is actually defined as an act of gazing. Young men like to gaze, I mean, you know, and all of that. And, uh, and they focus more, young men, on the external. When it talks about old men will dream dreams, it's not talking about him taking a nap so much as it is, it literally means vision in a dream. In other words, the old men, the seasoned guys, the guys with a little white hair going around the edges or whatever like I have, been around for a while, they're focused more on the internal. They're able to see things afar off. You need both in the church. One enhances the other, if you think about it. You need the zeal of the young, but you also need, you know, I mean, us, us older folks around who say, yeah, that's a great idea, but have you thought about, because they've been there, they've done that, they got the t-shirt, and they can help guide things, amen? So we need both operating within the church. I'm getting to verse 18 here in chapter 2 in the book of Acts, and of course he reminds, he says it once again here, the prophet Joel, and on my men servant and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, they shall speak forth the word of God. That's what we're doing this morning. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath and blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun will turn dark to darkness and the moon will turn to blood before the coming of the day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. During that great tribulation period, there will be people who will come to the Lord. And we've talked about the great tribulation period. And as we went through the study of the book of Revelation some time ago, but there's a seven year period during the great tribulation, it's called uh, seven, seven years that uh, there will be great tribulation upon the earth when God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. I mean, you, I know we have earthquakes and things now, but we ain't seen any, nothing yet. Amen. Uh, the Bible tells us that in the book of Revelation and talks about uh, signs on earth and signs in the heavens. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 and chapter 8, verse 12, talks about the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. Now we've had some uh, red moons or whatever, blood moons uh, uh, here recently and they come around periodically, but what he's talking about here in context is what will be happening during the tribulation period with the darkening of the sun and the moon turning blood red. This will happen during the seven year tribulation period. So he's real specific about that just before the day, the coming day of the Lord. Uh, the, the, the good news is simply this, and that is, now again, he, part of the prophecy has come to pass, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, but the rest of this prophecy is yet to take place. Hasn't happened yet. And I believe it's going to happen before the seven-year tribulation period, and the good news is that the church will be out of here, raptured, snatched off the face of the earth, Amen. To meet the Lord in the air, as the Bible declares. Amen. Now, I know there's some who disagree with that. They say, no, I think we're going to go through the tribulation period, which my response is, then have at it. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> Nail your shoes to the floor. So when the rapture comes, you stay here and you can go through the tribulation period. But the rest of us are going to go be with the Lord. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. And the reason I say that, I'm not trying to be facetious, but the reason I say it. It's because God has not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. And what is happening in the tribulation period mentioned in the book of Revelation is that God is pouring his wrath out upon the earth. And he has not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. And so he says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just, you know, as people call upon the name of the Lord now are saved, people during the Great tribulation will come to Christ as well and be saved, but they will have to go through the tribulation period. 
So God, people will be saved and will come to salvation during the great tribulation as well. All right. So part of this prophecy was fulfilled from Joel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The rest of it is yet to be fulfilled. Okay, there's two categories there. The second reveal, now we come to it, after spending so much time with the first, the second reveal in Peter's sermon uh, has to do with Christ. In verses 22 all the way to verse uh, 36. But let's start at verse 22. He reveals Christ uh, here to them. Uh, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. In other words, you guys saw these signs. You know about Jesus. Amen. And he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose, uh, being delivered by the, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pangs of death because it was, it was not possible, amen? It was not possible that he should be held by death and the grave, held by it, amen? And so what's he, what is Peter doing here? Man, he's really, he's driving it home is what he's doing. I mean, he's really letting them have it uh, in a sense. He tells them that just Jesus Christ, this Christ that God attested to, what does that mean that God bore witness to? How did he bear witness through signs and miracles and wonders. He attested to the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. Remember John the Baptist sent some of his uh, messengers, his disciples to uh, Jesus, messengers to Jesus, and they asked him, and John asked Jesus through his messengers. He said, are you the one, or should we look for another? And remember what Jesus replied? It's in Luke chapter 7, verse 19, 22, and 23. In Luke chapter 7. Jesus replied, go tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Go, in other words, he was saying, go tell John that the prophecies uh, concerning the Messiah and what he will do when he comes in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 are, have been fulfilled. Amen? And so John knew that, wow. So Jesus didn't say, well, I'm kind of a good guy. Could you tell him? No, he said, no, take him to the word. And I'm doing exactly what has been prophesied the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world would do. So John understood that indeed he was saying that he was indeed the Messiah. John chapter 10, verse 37, 38, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, if you don't like me or my style or whatever, at least believe the works. At least believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in the father. Amen. If you don't like me, okay, I get it. But at least believe the works. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. And this is why the world is cursed, because the world is offended by Jesus. But blessed are those who are not offended by him. In verse 23, as we continue on, of course, you know, uh, Peter kind of tightens down the screws a little bit. And he, he just, he doesn't hold back. And he says, 
that number one, that first and foremost, salvation has come because of God's determined purpose and God's foreknowledge. Salvation is not of man, but it is of God. Jonah said that in Jonah chapter uh, two, verse nine, a latter part of verse nine, Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It was God's determination to love us. It was God's foreknowledge that he had ordained that there would be a savior sent to the world to die for our sins. It was God and God alone. It wasn't us. We were lost in our sins. We cared nothing about God. But yet while we were still sinners, the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. But it was all because of God, what God did, not anything that mankind did. And then, of course, Peter doesn't hold back. He, he tells him he lays the blame really undeniably at the feet of the world, at the feet of his audience. And I think it is it's, what a great reminder to us. It's far too many times, you know, we are reluctant to call the world to task and to place the blame where it rightfully belongs. He said, you crucified him. Wow. You crucified him. He's not holding back. No, I don't want to offend anybody. You know, no, he's being honest. You crucified him. Why? And we, we sitting here today, we crucified him. Because there is no time with God. Well, well, I wasn't back there. God sees time to end from the beginning. And he saw our sins as well. And so it was we, us, our lawless hands that nailed Jesus to the cross. We crucified him. Amen. Therefore, we are guilty. We are guilty. And this is what Peter's saying. You know, before you can be innocent, you've got to know you're guilty. Before you can be healed, you've got to know that you're sick. And he's just coming. He's not pulling back. He's saying, listen, you guys did this. You crucified him. Your sins. And our sins even today crucified him. I was listening to the radio the other day and the pastor was sharing this and it really blessed my soul. I, I, I preached about this before and all, but the way he said it just really, boom, like a light bulb went on. A deep appreciation for what the Lord has done for us. He said, you know what? Who is the most notorious sinner of all time? And you think of Hitler, you think of, you know, Stalin, you think of mass murders and all this kind of stuff. Notorious people, you know, just all this sinners, you know, criminals and all of this. And he said, the most notorious sinner of all time is Jesus Christ. Some of you are going, hmm? <laughs> you know why? Because when he hung on the cross, he bore the sins of the entire world throughout all the ages. Amen. He bore your sins. He bore my sins. Yes, he did. This will blow your mind. Every pedophile, every child molester, every murderer, every thief, every fornicator, every liar, Every, un, every act of unfaithfulness you have ever committed or the, ever been committed in the world was placed upon Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And he became the most notorious sinner that ever lived for us. He bore our sins so that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Will somebody praise the Lord for that? Amen. Praise his holy name. That's what he did. He said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way but for you to bear all the sins of mankind throughout all the ages. And your sins along right with them. So it wasn't, oh, they're lawful, unlawful hands. No, my unlawful hands pounded the nails into the hands and the feet of Jesus. 
Thank God for his grace. Amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Jesus was our scapegoat. Real quick. I don't have time to dive into it a lot, but Leviticus chapter 16. Back in the Old Testament, you know where the pages are still stuck together. Leviticus 16 talks about a ceremony among the priests of Israel that God ordained where they would take two goats. One was sacrificed, slaughtered. The other goat, the priest, the high priest Aaron would place his hands on the head of the goat, representing all the sins of Israel being placed on the head of that goat. And the goat was released into the wilderness to never return. Jesus Christ in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. He was our sacrifice and he was our scapegoat. And he carried our sins away from us. Amen. Praise his holy name. Amen. That goat represented, that goat left, it was, it's called a scapegoat. Rabbinical tradition teaches that they would usually have a couple of priests or Levites follow the goat to make sure it didn't make a U-turn and come back into the camp. <laughs> so they would just make sure he conveniently fell over a cliff. Amen. So the goat didn't come back. You know, I know Peter wouldn't be happy, but that's what they did. All right. Did I miss you guys on that, Peter? You don't get it? Okay, all right. But Jesus Christ is our scapegoat. God, who was rich in mercy, saved us. God and God alone. And this is the reason why David rejoiced. Look here at verse 25. It says, for David says concerning him. Concerning who? Concerning Jesus. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope and you will not leave my soul in Hades, that is in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One, that is Jesus, to see corruption. David prophesied this hundreds of years before Christ. He says, you have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. How can we have the fullness of joy in the presence of God unless we've been deemed innocent? And our innocence is through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Who died for our sins. We go on here in verse 29 and following. And David, uh, Peter rather makes the point that it is Jesus, not David, who died for your sins. Basically is what he's saying. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. <laughs> you know, David didn't, wasn't risen from the dead. You know, neither is Buddha or Muhammad. Their tombs are right over there. Amen? He's basically telling this audience that is primarily made up of Jewish people that, and they were familiar with King David, that King David is not your salvation. It's in Jesus Christ. Let's read on. He says, therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He said David was also not only a king, but he was a prophet. And David 
uh, uh, knew that from the fruit of his body, that is from the lineage of his, his life, his, the lineage of David, the Messiah would come. Jesus was of the lineage of David through Mary. Amen. Not through Joseph, through Mary, because Joseph wasn't his daddy. God was. <laughs> Amen. And so he's saying, making this point that this is the one that will sit on your throne forever when God promised David that he would have an heir that would sit on his throne forever. He's talking about the Messiah. So he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning, verse 31, concerning, uh, let's see, the, the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, in the grave, nor did his flesh, that is the flesh of Jesus, see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. They've seen Christ risen from the dead. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father that the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's he speaking of? The Lord said to my Lord, who's the Lord of, of David? Jesus Sit at my right hand. Where's Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Till I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, until God gives Jesus the signal, it's time for him to come back to the earth. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Amen. Not the Jesus you made up in your mind. Not the Jesus the world talks about. Amen. Not some Jesus fabricated according to my lifestyle. But he made this Jesus, the risen Christ, amen, whom you crucified. He's not letting them off the hook. Amen. He tells me you crucified. He has made him Lord and Christ. And I love that Lord and Christ. Why would he say Lord and Christ? Because he must be Lord and Christ in our life. If he is Lord, then we can make a religion out of him. If he's just Christ, then, you know, we can make an emotion out of him. He's our savior. Oh, isn't Jesus so nice and meek and mild? But he must be Lord and Christ if we're truly going to know God. He must be the ultimate authority in my life and the ultimate relationship in my life. Amen. Amen. Praise his holy name. He is not just Lord or Christ. He's Lord and Christ. Amen. The last reveal we have here is salvation. I'll wrap it up here. Last reveal is salvation. Why do I say that? Because verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I love that. When people are really under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God's really spoken to their heart, spoken to your heart. You don't have to be sold into the kingdom. Your next question is, man, what do I do? Amen. Because the Holy Spirit is convicted. Peter has just revealed everything. And the Holy Spirit is drawing him to salvation. What must we do? And then Peter said to them, repent. <laughs> Whoa, Peter, lighten up, dude. <laughs> He's not lighting up. Repent. Oh, you don't mention that in church anymore. Oh, don't tell people repent. They get offended. Amen. But we need to repent. Repent is to turn around. Amen. To go in another direction. Repent. From the Greek word, metanoel. Metanoel. And it means to change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. 
repent. And he says, and let every one of you, excuse me, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everyone who comes to Christ receives the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And he would say, oh, this God is being selective. No, he's not. He calls all. Why do I, I, don't, I don't know that? Because the Bible says that God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As many who would answer the call. Amen. There's salvation for them. No matter how far off you are. Say, well, I'm way off, Pastor. God could never. Hey, you're not so far that grace is not able to reach you still. Amen. No matter how far you've wandered, the Lord's grace is sufficient for you. And so he says to them to repent. This is the way to salvation. Repentance. This is not crocodile tears. This is not I'm sorry I got caught. But a genuine desire to change. And to be changed. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces only death. The sorrow of the world is crocodile tears. Amen. Then he says, be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is the first act of obedience unto the Lord. It's an outward expression of an inward work, which... For many believers, if they, when they participate in baptism in a lot of places in the world today, it could cost them their life, literally. But it's an outward sign of an inward work that God has done within your life. Repent and be baptized. Again, baptism doesn't save you. Faith in Christ saves you. Of course, proof text is the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you would be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to get baptized, did he? Amen. But Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because faith in Christ is what saves us. Baptism is an act of obedience. <coughs> Excuse me. And the promise of salvation is to all. Amen. Well, in conclusion, let me just say this, that the great reveal, we talked about the great reveal. The great reveal reveals the great rescue. And that's what Peter revealed here to the, to the audience, that God has sent us a rescuer. He sent us a savior. God orchestrated the great reveal by his great love. He did so through prophecy. He did so through Christ. He did so through salvation. And the promise has been fulfilled. Praise God. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming. The kingdom has come. The church has been established on the earth. And Jesus, my friend, is coming soon. Here's the question. <laughs> Will you be ready for his great reveal? Amen. When he splits the sky open and he returns. I pray you will be. Well now, that was refreshing. You've been listening to Pastor Al Pittman with a powerful message from the explosive second chapter of Acts. Here we find a dynamic story where Peter explains to a startled crowd what had just taken place on the day of Pentecost. The repercussions of events on that monumental day have rippled down through the centuries and we see it echoing in the church even today. We'll pick up right here next time as we move into Acts chapter 3. I hope you'll join us for this vital verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. If you missed some of the messages from the first and second chapter, catch up by clicking in at cwccs.org. And that'll do it for us today. Thanks for joining. This program is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.